for actions alone that are that are in harmony with thee can lead to true success. My will, Lord, is to do thy will alone. For actions alone that are in harmony with thee can lead to true success. My will, Lord, is to do thy will alone. For actions alone that are in harmony with thee can lead to true success. Om. Peace. Amen. Right, we're starting today on lesson 12. What kind of compromises? Very interesting lesson. What kind of compromises? And I try to sort of grasp the essence of what his point is. And this one is a very interesting combination of things. You know, he's all the way through this course. Of course, (laughs) he's been talking about being steadfast to your ethical and your moral principles the importance of dharma and that karma catches up with you and if you don't really know where you stand and stand by it and where there is dharma there is victory and cutting corners is not going to work and then he starts talking about um, the difference basically between being committed and being pig-headed and trying to also realize that success never comes unless you're grounded in practical reality toward the end of this lesson he quotes that statement of master's to him, that you have to be practical in your idealism. Um, it's really, dar- where there's dharma, there's victory, where people are more important than things, and you have to be practical in your idealism, are really the three mottos, I think, of Swami's life. He tends to mention the first two in the context of Ananda, but the third one is actually, I think, as fundamental to his success and to the success of our whole enterprise, the Ananda enterprise, as any of the other two. And it's interesting that, as I understand it, that statement of Master's, that you have to be practical in your idealism, came to him, was spoken to Swamiji. After that incident he often describes, where he was at the Bar Mitzvah in Beverly Hills, and he was among all the Jewish doctors and psychiatrists, and um, he had been invited there. And I asked Swami many times, why were you invited? He said, I was invited to demonstrate yoga postures at this bar mitzvah party. Like, go figure. In the early 1950s, who, who knows? Maybe it was like they were having a lot of acts. <laughs> anyway, he was there. And afterwards, he's conversing with some of the guests. And there was a Jewish psychiatrist who was sort of atheistic in his point of view and very materialistic, as you might imagine. And uh, so Swami tried to win him to the cause of self-realization and to an appreciation of who Master was by telling him stories about miracles that he'd witnessed. And somehow in Swami's mind, he thought this would be persuasive to this man. And the way Swami always tells the story, he feels like the psychiatrist was mentally trying to figure out whether he could fit him in for treatments you know, just assuming that this was a loony, that he really was going to need to help. The next thing that was going to happen is he would be seeing him professionally. Um, That's how persuasive it was. And then Swami tells the story for many different reasons, but one of them is is when he went back later and saw Master, he didn't tell Master about it, but Master told him about it, saying, oh, by the way, when you're with, you know, people who are atheists, it's better not to talk about miracles. People are very materialistic, I think is how he put it. Better not to talk about miracles. And Swami's response was, you knew? You, you, you know, you weren't anywhere near there. And then Master said, I knew every single thought that you think. Which is, you know, just amazing aspects of this. But it was also in that context that Master said to him, you've got to be practical in your idealism. And so somehow putting it together with that story has always made it even more, like, interesting to me. Because Swami's idealism was... Well, you know, Master's this great avatar, and if everybody could understand really how fabulous he is, then they would all become interested. And here I am with these materialistic people, and wouldn't it be a great service to them to bring them to the spiritual path? So I'm going to really tell them about what I'm involved in, and they're going to get so excited about it. And of course, they were like not interested, because Swami wasn't being practical. 
He wasn't really thinking. And what does practical mean? Practical means to do that which works. I mean, if, you, if you're doing something practical, you're doing something that actually has an effect. It, it, when sometimes people use the phrase practical to be sort of the opposite of being spiritual or being idealistic. Come on, let's get practical here. And stop, get your head out of the clouds, stop dreaming. And sometimes it's a, a, it's a code word for let's be cynical, let's not have any aspirations. But in its more realistic phrase, it just means that we don't want to just sit here and talk about these things. We don't want to just sort of be off dreaming. It is an antidote to that. We want to actually do something that has concrete results. And of course, this whole course, we're calling it manifesting through the power of yoga, material success through yoga principles, whatever you call it, it's not about philosophy. It's about actually, tangibly, having direct results as a consequence of living according to these teachings. In fact, the whole reason Master came to America when, when he was asked, you know, what brought you here? It was the longing of the American people for a practical approach to spirituality. And then he says, Americans are very practical people. They like to get things done and they want to make things happen. And so they, they wanted a spiritual path that was also really grounded and not just a question of dogma and not just a question of the promises of the priests, but something we could really put our hands in, on, and make happen. And, and that's among the ways that if you want the really short version of describing what Master's message to the world is, it's that spiritual responsibility, spiritual development, the responsibility for spiritual development is put into the hands of the individual. It's not a matter of going to the right church. It's not a matter of following all the rules. It's not a matter of getting the priest to bless you. It's not a matter of hiring a pujari to do all the right pujas for you. It's right in your hands. It's very idealistic, but it's also very practical. So when Swami, when Master said that to Swamiji, he was, he was trying to, to bring him into a real relationship with life. And yes, we have these enormously inspiring teachings, and yes, it would be great if everyone were on the spiritual path, but we also have to be practical in the way that we approach it. So this whole course, I mean, the whole basis of this course, and still is, is about right attitude, right behavior, right ideals, right understanding, but we also have to be able to live in this world or else we won't manifest anything. We'll have the enormous satisfaction of having stuck to our principles, but we'll be living on... uh, old crust and, you know, the, and welfare because we won't have been practical in our idealism. So he, he starts this talking about this by talking about the fact that everything in life, I mean, life is full of compromises, that this world that we live in is inconveniently arranged for the practice of absolute truths. We're always having to compromise. We compromise right from the start, you know, with having physical bodies. We have this um, awareness, this philosophical commitment, this intuitive, absolute faith that this material world isn't real and that we really are the eternal spirit and we just inhabit these bodies. But we're cold, we're hungry, we're lonely, um, we have sexual desires, we have survival instincts, we have all these different things that are physical imperatives imposed upon us by this body we live in. And when we first started uh, Ananda Village years ago, um, in the early 70s, there was a lot of young people, very idealistic and very untested, just people with a lot of enthusiasm. And we would read books about saints, and we'd read about St. Francis, and various experiments went on, you know, the, the going barefoot all through the winter experiment, the seeing if I can live without heat experiment, the let me stop combing my hair and let just grow matted locks experiment, the, you know, let's see if I can just live on alfalfa sprouts experiment, you know, if we're supposed to be fruitarians, nothing but apples. And we went through a lot of them. <laughs> and, you know, and, and people went in and out of them for the most part because you don't see many barefoot in the snow or matted locks around anymore. We saw quite a few cases of bronchitis and things like that too. Just as it would gradually come out that someone was not exactly being practical in their idealism, but had some inflated idea of how they were going to now live on the spiritual path and that's what it was going to be. 
And all the way through it, we always had swamis just, well, the only word I can use always is just this very practical example. And in, in fact, the first time that I met him in 1969, in November of 69, he, he was for me in my very first in, intuitive impression. He was to my eyes a remarkable combination of, of self-evidently extraordinarily expanded spiritual consciousness but there was there wasn't the slightest bit of 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 airiness about him elevated yes but not airy it was like there was a, a like a solid core all the way from you know where he stood to where his consciousness went out beyond what i could see as far as i could see but th- he just approached it like this is real life and this isn't a game we're playing. This isn't something we're going to do for a while. This is real life. We have to have a really long-range view of this if we're going to make things happen. We have to be able to stand in this world and really see what this world is. And that's a, not an easy task. It's not an easy task for people. They, they, most people are either materialistic and they just don't even try, or we become idealistic and then develop a kind of aversion to having to think too carefully and too consciously about what's really going on. When we were in the early years of Ananda and we were extremely impoverished. We're still impoverished, but we're impoverished at a very high level now. That's how I say we go bankrupt from a much higher higher story. We still run, you know, zero bank accounts, but just a lot more of everything flows through those bank accounts, but nothing stays in them just as it always was. But in those early days, it, through the 70s, when uh, the idea of tithing first really came into the community, that was sort of part of when tithing came in. There was this idea that we should be, uh, uh, that we wanted to be more prosperous. And so there were a lot of, uh, what do you call, prosperity concepts going around. And uh, the phrase poverty consciousness uh, was, was a phrase that would be hurled as an, uh, I, I can't remember which is an epitaph or which is an epithet. One of them is an insult and the other is what you read on your tombstone. But whatever it is, the one that's an insult, it would be kind of an insult. You all have poverty consciousness, people would say to us or about us. I actually reflected on it myself and I realized we didn't have poverty consciousness at all. We had really something quite the opposite. We had little rich kids consciousness, which is that somehow money would come to us and we didn't really have to work for it. that we never actually had to apply ourselves diligently, that we could just kind of float around and that somehow the bills would magically get paid. It was really exactly the opposite. We had such a sense of, of uh, misguided entitlement. If we'd actually been poverty consciousness, conscious, we would have known how hard we had to work to get money. Um, we just weren't practical in our idealism. Swamiji was virtually the only one. And he gradually, you know, captured everyone's attention sufficiently and and we all started applying ourselves in one way or another, you know. Not all of our ideas um, really took off, but they they limped along, you know, for many years. We had this little incense and oils business that Jyotish started and it just, you know, kept churning out small sums of money for a few people. We made macrame diligently for a couple of years until some, I think we were one of the first groups to be offshored, what's the word? outsourced, right? The whole, we had this huge business making macrame, huge business. Everybody was in their trailers. We were just all in our trailers making macrame plant hangers just, you know, hour after hour. And then it was outsourced to some country like, and overnight, the whole thing just absolutely vaporized. I mean, these are big deals. You know, you're making $2 an hour, but without it, you're not making $2 an hour. At some point, Jyotish tried to start a suitcase manufacturing business. I'm not really quite sure how that happened. That was really early. Anyway, then one enterprise after another. That was the suitcase factory. That was before my time. And I'm not really sure where that ever came from or went to. Maybe it morphed into the oils business somehow. But in any case, you know, during all that time, it was an attempt to figure out how to be spiritual, how to live in an ashram, how to be righteous, and how not to, and how, be, and how to eat simultaneously, doing all those things at the same time. But um, what I was beginning to say with all of that is, you know, this world is not designed for us to, at this stage, that, you know, maybe in a higher age we'll be able to live more 
just by vibrations. But at this point in uh, the planet, the evolution of the planet, the early Dwapar rising, um, there, there's too many cross currents uh, that we're always being caught in, that we can't just sort of live above things. We have to always be interacting and thinking about this. So Swamiji is trying to get us to, to start by understanding um, that compromise is inherent and that the word compromise is not in itself a bad idea um, because there's, there's many different ways that you compromise and not all of them are compromising to your ideals and to your reality. I know um, I, was, I was very struck myself in a conversation I had with this young woman who was at the time a Stanford student and was, I've, I've told you about her, but let me put it in this context. She was very drawn to this path. I was very drawn to her. I thought she would have really been very happy as a devotee. She chose to take another path, so there you have it. But she was anxious about her future if she decided to throw in her lot with us. So I being more than twice her age, she asked me if I was happy with my life. And, you know, to me that's a very feeble question because there aren't a lot of people, unless they're really cranky, who will openly admit, no, I'm not happy with my life. People tend to be very self-justifying. And no matter what choices they've made, no matter how miserable they are, they'll declare that they're happy. Or at least they'll have, have basically lowered their concept of happiness to the point where they can declare that they have it. So I told her that I didn't really think that was a very valid question because a lot of people would say they were happy. And I spoke to her of my youth, my childhood, and my teen years, which were I knew were similar to hers, that I was an intensely idealistic person, just um, with this profound longing for some transcendent truth that no one ever talked to me about. I mean, you know, school, everything was just such a... Um, I have this mental picture of myself, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I just have the picture of myself just standing sort of while, while my whole um, upbringing just went past me, and I just stood on the edge sort of waiting for it to start. Just sort of, I, I all, almost always felt just outside of whatever was going on. I just never knew how to enter in to what was happening around me. I wasn't um, freakishly like that, but I was sufficiently like that, that that's how it really felt to me. Um, Because what I was interested in, they weren't interested in. And it wasn't until, fortunately, I was only 18 that I found the spiritual path. And then there it was. This is it. This is what I was looking for. But in that idealism, you know, I, I didn't want to see my life just dribble out into the mundane. Because I, I suspected, without knowing, that a lot of people around me who seemed to be living such a mundane existence probably didn't start out with that as their intention. You know, it wasn't even that they lived a bad existence, it was just mundane. There it was, it was just a question of perpetuating almost the physical imperatives, you know. Maybe they were intellectual, maybe they were artistic, but it was too much. And then the second thing was this desire to in some way, be actually useful to people. And not just useful in the way of writing on water, like getting your candidate in to the political office and then having him gradually turn as corrupt as all the others, you know, or try to fight so hard for this legislative change and then realize it's, you know, all the things that everyone goes through. Or to help poor people and then discovering that the people you're trying to help are stealing from you. I mean, it's, it's not anything against any category. It's just the way thing, life is. I was reading this little book about, that Ramani gave me that she was very pleased about. It was a book about how many extremely impoverished people in, uh, in developing countries actually still send their children to private schools. That in, in the hearts of slums all over the country and in impoverished villages... Small entrepreneurs start small private schools and for pennies a day they educate the children. And they do this because so often in these countries the government schools are just a complete joke. They're just corrupt. The teachers have tenure. Nobody really works. It's just a mess. And and in the process of him documenting, he was in the country of Ghana, he made reference to this pristine government building, school building, where none of the parents wanted to send their children because they never learned anything in that school. 
and it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That you know, it's just like that's just the way things happen in this world. It's so difficult. So one is really faced with actually uh, to finish the the question, the story that I was telling you when I said to this my friend, I said simply, you know, ask me if I've been able to maintain my idealism and feel that I've been able to live without compromising my ideals? And the answer to that is yes. I've I've been able to live, I feel like I've never, I'm 63 almost, I feel like I am as idealistic today and that I've fulfilled, I mean, my youthful idealism. Think how rare that is. Now, I had to say, the form of that idealism has shifted a little bit but not really very much. You know, there were things brought into the story that I didn't expect, but they, they were entirely consistent with my intentions from the story. That's extremely unusual if you really think about that. Now, so what, um, what Swamiji was wanting us to understand is that holding to your ideals does not mean that you necessarily take a rigid position in regard to your actions and especially not in regard to other people. Because in, when you, once you start moving through this world and start having to work with other people's realities, and how, man, how, how often in the earlier lessons has Swami talked repeatedly setting the stage for this, you have to work with things as they are. You know, you, you can't work with things as you want them to be. One of the, the gravest errors people make in, in, and why so many well-intentioned projects do not succeed is that people are not able to deal with things as they actually are. And oftentimes it's a misguided sense of affirmation or idealism that I'm just going to hold to this image that I have, but I'm never going to become practical enough to really see you know, who's ready for what I have to offer, who who wants what I have to offer. I know years ago when Ananda was trying to start a certain business, I consulted a relative of mine who was a very fine businessman. And he said, and it proved prophetic in this particular enterprise, you should never go into business selling something you love, he said. Now that seemed very cynical to me at the time, but later I realized what he meant because it blinds you to how attractive it is to other people. (laughs) That's what he meant. (laughs) Or phrase it, Differently, you don't notice that other people don't love it as much as you do. You're just so utterly excited about it that you think everybody will feel like you do. I've made that mistake. I've never been in business. I've never gone so far as to be in business. But I've made that mistake quite a few times in uh, vastly overestimating other people's enthusiasm for something I thought was wonderful. (laughs) You know, and ending up with a lot of whatever it was on my hands and nobody else being the slightest bit interested (laughs) because I'd gone into business selling something I loved. But, uh, and, and so Swami tries to also to talk about, he talks a lot about how to be unbiased in your thinking. And he tells us the whole long story of how he spent 16 years writing the book that he calls Out of the Labyrinth now, Crises in Modern Thought, in which he really tried to deal with the crises in modern thought. And the crises in modern thought is people taking all this scientific evidence and all of the expanded awareness that is characteristic of our time, all the technological advances, and the more people sort of study and learn and gain some kind of influence and mastery over the material world, the more people sort of unravel the secrets of nature, so they imagine, um, the more there's an inclination to just see it all as a mechanistic process. And it, it leads ever more strongly to the belief that it's all just randomly happening that evolution is just sort of trucking along without any purpose at all, and that it's, this whole world is just a, a materialistic place, there's nothing beyond it, see how the mechanisms work together, and I mean, I've never really studied these things at great length. I was, somebody sent me an article today about forgiveness, which on one hand, it's, um, I'm glad they're writing about it. It was based on the remarkable stories that have come out of Rwanda, you know where the two ethnic groups that had lived together for generations, one group was incited against the other and, you know, neighbors literally picked up machetes and hacked their neighbors to pieces. And then a long time later, 
the country has taken the approach of, of trying to reconcile. And so, so the story begins with, you know, a woman there and she's sitting in the living room with this man and his two children. And it turns out this woman is the sole survivor of her whole family, brothers, sisters, children, nieces, nephews. And her family was massacred by the man sitting next to her. You know, you just, you, your mind can hardly go there. And I know many of you have read the book Left to Tell and the subsequent book that that same woman wrote. I mean, it's, it's a story the mind can hardly go around. Interestingly, Rwanda is apparently, you know, it's a sort of evangelical Christian or Catholic country. Just a, there's, there's, it, it's a very church-going country. So the context in which all that happened was both religious, but it's also c- coming back, you know, into the Christian concept of forgiveness. And all of that is really remarkable. But what was so amazing about this article, which I haven't read all of, is that, of course, people have to be scientific about this, and they, they can't draw the obvious conclusion that these people are profoundly motivated by their love for God and their devotion to Jesus and their desire to have right consciousness. So they actually talk about how f- forgiveness is a, 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 an evolutionary necessity because otherwise you lose the genetic material of the person you have it, you've ostracized from the community. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. So it's like it, it's, it's programmed into us. It's a survival instinct. Forgiveness is a survival instinct. I mean, it was, that was when I stopped reading. I may go back and try to read a little bit more. But it's like, let's, let's do everything we can to make sure that we don't have any higher explanation than the grossest for what we're talking about. So Swamiji writes that when he was first thrown out of SRF, just before he was thrown out of SRF, he had this inspiration that somebody ought to answer this. Because even if people are not conscious of those philosophies, studied them and don't know about them, those ideas have just... And people are influenced by their being influenced. Answer to it because of highly intellectual reasoning, dogmatism on the other side. And there's no, there's no bridge. There's no sort of respectable bridge. You know, intellectual people or intelligent people don't want to be identified with these dogmas. And yet, sensitive souls are finding their hearts are being broken by this um, philosophy of meaninglessness. So Swamiji, it's a very important part of his life. He, he mentions it often. You know, Swami said after Yogananda died, and Swamiji was like, not 25. I mean, he, he had three and a half years with Master. Master died in March of 52, and I guess Swamiji probably turned 25 in May of that same year. That would be correct, wouldn't it? 26. So he was 25 years old when his guru died. 25? I mean, if you're only 25, that seems like a very ripe age. But if you're past 25, you know that there's a lot of life after 25. So his entire spiritual life was built on the experiences that he had before he was 25 years old, or I should say was launched, because they're built on his own reality. And he knew that he um, would have to write about Master someday, because Master had made that clear that eventually that would happen. And so Swamiji said when he wrote The Path, and uh, later when he wrote Self-Realization, that he had to wait a long time before he felt he could write about Master And he said he meditated on every incident of Master's life because nothing in his life happened by accident and everything was a reflection of how a being of higher consciousness would respond to certain situations. And I've listened to Swamiji talk now for 40 years and he, he, some stories he'll just repeat and repeat and repeat, um, and and it's it comes it's been coming to me more and more intensely. Of course, it came to me strongly when I wrote the the book about him, and I want to write another, so I'm thinking about it a lot uh, all the time. Just how many lessons are in there, both an explanation of his own reality and an explanation for us. And he's always talking; it's often talking about out of the labyrinth is his most important book. But he also talks about and he explains it really deeply in here what he had to do to write that book. Because what he had to do was he had to look at these philosophies which he, he, he knew to be false, but he couldn't go it, into them 
with the sort of a priori assumption that this is stupid. Because the people writing it, he said, among other things, were brilliant. And many people took them seriously. He had to go into them and actually like experience the, the premises that they were working with and then where they were going with that process. And his thought in writing that book was not to introduce new ideas. See, what people usually do is they'll introduce a new idea. They'll say, well, the Bible says, and therefore what's written here can't be true. But what he wanted to see was that if he could show how their own facts could be led to completely different conclusions and that the reasoning that they were using um, point to point, premise to premise, was in itself flawed on its own terms. You see the difference? But he said in order to do that, he had to be, he had to rigidly withhold from his thinking all of his previous biases and go in, as he put it, into the enemy's camp and just really sort of deal, deal with it seriously. Now that's the whole part of it. But what he writes in here, which is interesting, is he said because of that, he realized, because of that exercise, where, see, for the 14 years prior to that, he lived in a monastery in which everybody agreed with everybody. We were all disciples of the same master. We all accept all of these premises are agreed upon. And one of the most dangerous things that happens, the positive side of living in an ashram or living in a monastery, is that you're wonderfully supported in your spiritual aspirations But the danger of it is that you can become very narrow in your capacity to relate to the world and very narrow in in your inclination to disregard and consider somehow as utterly misguided people who don't agree with you and not to be able to genuinely respect the realities that they're, they're living in. And if you can't respect them, then you do things like you tell the psychiatrist about the miracles your guru has performed, thinking somehow that that's a helpful gesture because one is so out of touch or disrespectful of the processes that person is actually following. And not only does it make you less, less useful, it makes you less effective in all areas because one has suddenly taken the, po- the, the realm of possibilities and made it this small. So Swamiji talks about how what later when he started Ananda he realized that that mental exercise, I mean, of course, he was always like this, but this is how he describes it, that that mental exercise had taught him to be extremely um, still in himself and not, not view anything from any biased filter, but just allow it to be presented to him as it was and then to just see where, where it could go, where, where it would take him. He could listen to anybody's point of view without reacting to it, without feeling a tendency to put it down or to change it, and then just hear what it was, and if it was true, it was true. As he says, you know, truth simply stands on its own. It doesn't have to be um, created by anybody. Now, that ability, coming back to the word compromise, which is where we started, is what's really essential if we're going to be able to figure out what the right thing to do is in all circumstances. Because if we only have a very narrow channel that we can walk down, very often whatever we're trying to do requires us to be able to embrace a much larger reality that has to be incorporated in it. So he he draws a lot of distinctions between all the different kinds of compromises. You know, he talks about diplomatic compromises where you're just sharing you know, your advantage for my advantage or or self-motivated profit compromises where we just do what we have to do to get money. But what he's really talking about is how do we deal when there's real principles involved? And the, the first thing, one of the first things he tells us is to be very, very careful about what is really a principle and what is not a principle. And he uses the expedient, the example in this case of an incident at Ananda village, which, you know, I remember it wasn't that long ago, where this man who'd built a house, he built it badly, he built it himself, and because he wasn't skilled, it took him three times as long to build. And in circumstances that were a little bit tenuous for him, I can't remember the details, he had to leave, and he was going to leave penniless unless he could get the money out that he'd put into his house, and he had a family. It was not a nondis policy at that time to refund this money, but the man would have had to leave with nothing. And so he demanded 
asked for, you know, this is the value of my house, he said, based on all the hours of work I put into it. And as Swami tells the story, you know, people were disinclined to give it to him. He was leaving, after all, it was a, a crazy claim. And the accounting department, Swami says, above all, didn't want to because the principle that they were standing on was that it wasn't right, you know, to, to just give in to his demands, is how they seemed. And it wasn't right because then we would start down this road where anybody could just make any claims they wanted and we'd be stuck. And that's what he was calling principle. You know, and it's really easy to see how that would be principle. But then Swami just brought in a completely other principle, which was the principle of compassion. And compassion, you know, where does that fit in? Here's this man, he's really in trouble and he really needs this money. So why not give it to him? And when Swami sort of put it in that direction, I mean, I was part of the discussions, it was like, well, it was hard. It was harder to argue against that. This man really needs the money. And if we don't give it to him, he's going to have just a terrible time. And if we do give it to him, he'll be able to make a smooth transition and reestablish himself somewhere else. And the Swami says, of course, we all went with his point of view. But it also told us, you see, there's many different principles that you can point to. And it takes a lot of courage sometimes to have the principle be compassion because compassion is an intuitive principle. It's not a dogmatic principle. A dogmatic principle of houses are worth this much and this is how much people put into them and this is how much people can get out is an extremely easy, quote, principle to grab a hold of. A principle of compassion sort of puts you out there in an area and, and the arguments that went on at the time were, well, you know, well, what are we going to do with the next person when they come? Well, I guess we're just going to have to deal with that one too, aren't we? You know, and, and the desire often, what we call principle, is just a desire to be able to hold a rigid position and not have to live either with the insecurity or the challenge of having to constantly review it and reinvent it. You know, Swamiji has never been afraid of the concept of precedent. I'm, I mean, sometimes, you know, he, he has invoked it at different times, but he's never afraid of, quote, starting a precedent. It's like you either have or you haven't, and it doesn't make any difference. And he felt the precedent of compassion was the precedent that he really wanted to start. And so then he also talks in this chapter about Martin Luther, of all people, whom most people would see, you know, as this real champion of principle. And Martin Luther was the one who really sort of launched the Protestant uh, Reformation by making this enormously powerful stand against the Catholic Church and its abuses. And, you know, Swamiji gives him a little bit of credit, but he also uses him as an example of, you know, what is the difference between being really principled and just being stubborn? Or, or even worse, this wonderful phrase I learned from Swami, which is called pig-headed, which I had never known. I'd never heard that phrase before until I heard it from Swamiji. And from time to time, he would refer to someone as just being pig-headed, which is actually, it's, it's a very exact term. <laughs> when you meet people who are actually pig-headed, you realize exactly what it is. It's just they, they just get an idea in their head. They become absolutely persuaded that it's the right thing. Often they have elevated it to some kind of a spiritual principle. But they're just rigid, is the word Swami's using. And that's what he was saying about Martin Luther, he said, you know, Martin Luther was certainly rigid. Of course, then Swami says the Catholic Church was even worse. You know, that, that you just had these two immovable forces fighting with each other. And he goes on to really talk about Martin Luther's error in thinking that the Bible, the words of the Bible were the definition of what the Bible was saying. And, and his, his not understanding that it had to be interpreted with wisdom. It wasn't just a question of interpreting it, and that was sort of what the argument was about. But then him becoming as fixed in his point of view as the Catholic Church was fixed in theirs, both of them talking about principle, but Swami's trying to express to us that unless principle also includes a sort of expansive, unbiased openness to other realities, then we're in danger of uh, using principle to excuse nothing but uh, narrow-mindedness. And this is, of course, would be an, an error in terms of being practical in our idealism. Okay?
Now, let's take a break, then we'll come back and deal with the rest of it. And do we have any questions or thoughts or comments about any of this? Any part of this lesson that you might have read? Anything that I said that might be of interest? (laughs) I could feel you (laughs) chomping at the bit. You could put, I actually was afraid you would tell me more than I wanted to know. <laughs> Since I know very little, the only point that Swami's making about Martin Luther, apart from anything else, is just it was rigid against rigid. But I'm sure there was a completely... I was actually very surprised that he used him as such as an example because I'm sure that... I was certain that there would be a whole other explanation about it. You know... I, uh, Uh-huh. And it, it's complicated with all kinds of history. Yeah. Well, he never spoke against the Protestant Reformation. Right. He only spoke about um, the force of his energy and the errors that he made in his thinking. Oh, yeah. And that's what Swami's really talking about. Okay. So, <laughs> any other questions or thoughts? <laughs> um. So, Amiji, I'm just going to touch on a few other points in here because this this whole lesson is very interesting. But one of the other realities that we've had to live through with Swami for many years has been the way he's dealt with being ousted from SRF. And not, not when I say that we've had to live with, the part of it that I'm referring to in this case is not his extremely generous attitude to people he considered to be his friends and his loyalty to them as gurubais, but what he has done repeatedly in offering to compromise is the phrase that he uses, how many times he has taken such what has appeared to to those of us on the outside, extreme steps in his willingness to um, bow to their, what seemed to us to be completely unreasonable demands and make all the concessions on his side. Um, But what he says in here, um, to offer compromise... Um, in good faith is I think right and often necessary for it clears the path ahead and then with a clear conscience one can devote all his energy to his next step for he has been released from any possible doubt as to the correctness of his course and so he, he talks about in here about how in many circumstances it's really necessary um, to compromise to give in to offer but he said, you, you must never compromise from a point of weakness. Which is very interesting. I mean, when we were dealing with SRF a great deal, and they were working with us, we, we went through different cycles of discussion among the 12 or so of us who were involved in making these decisions and working with all that controversy, that legal controversy. Because oftentimes Swami would say, they're bullies, and you can't just give in to a bully. In other words, if you, if you give in out of weakness, a bully will know that. And there's a way of compromising where you're, where you're compromising out of weakness because you just don't want to fight. I know sometimes people with a lot of money will use their money rather than use their spine, you know, to buy, them, buy their way out of difficulties. If they have the money to do it, they'll just buy their way. I'll just, you know, I'll... I'll I'll, get, I'll buy him what he wants or I'll give him what he's asking for. And it's, it's, even if you can afford to do it, it's a wrong use of resources because sometimes you have to just stand strong in whatever it is that you're doing. And if you're compromising out of weakness, which is an, an unwillingness or an inability to stand up and face a situation or stand up to someone, but sometimes you don't have any external strength from which to deal Maybe you're caught in something that even can be entirely unfair, but you're powerless. You, you really have no power from which to struggle. And Swamiji then says, he, he talks a great deal about how you have to become inwardly free. And so that even if your external actions appear to be even a capitulation, but to speak of a compromise, it isn't if you have acted from your own free choice 
with an inner sense of detachment and a, and a cooperative spirit that this is, if this is what God is asking of me, this is what I'll do. And at such times, the, in a sense, the moral victory remains yours and your ideals are not really compromised. An extraordinary story about that was Richard Wormbrand, who is a Protestant, he may still be living, a Protestant uh, minister who was a converted Jew from Romania. So he was imprisoned as a Jew by the Nazis and then as a Christian by the communists. And so he spent a lot of his life in prison. And when he was a Christian imprisoned by the Romanian communists, he was tortured and mistreated, you know, in, it, horrifically. It's one of those horrific tales. But it never broke his spirit, ever. In fact, it turned him into a great saint. And when he was eventually ransomed out by Western Christians who gave a lot of money to get him out, um, he, he, he came out, his body was, his health was not terrific, but his soul and his spirit was um, uh, limitless. We, we had the opportunity to, see, to hear him speak once. He was really thrilling to hear him speak. But one of the stories he tells in one of the books he wrote was when he was being tortured and the torture that was being imposed upon him was that he was being made to walk in circles in his cell. I mean, for hours and hours and hours and hours he was being forced to do this, you know, beyond fatigue and sleep deprivation and he was still being forced to walk. And he was having to find a way to find the inner strength to do this. And what, what he developed in his own consciousness doing that was that, you know, he, he could not be forced if he chose to do it before he was forced to do it. And so instead of having himself feel like they were making him do it, he just decided that he was doing it of his own free will. And, and it just, the whole experience turned for him of one of weakness and oppression to one of ever-increasing strength and then bliss because nothing was being done to him. He was doing it all for himself. An amazing story. So in Swamiji's talking to us, when we're in a difficult circumstance and things are being demanded of us and we're not sure what the right thing is to do, you know, Swami's, in his relationship with SRF, he was always asking Master, what is it that you really want me to do? And, and see, the training that he had with writing crises in modern thought, all of us, and I see it in retrospect when I read this chapter, all of us were just so biased in favor of Ananda and so prejudiced against SRF, partly because of what we knew, how they had treated Swami, that even if our conclusions were right, our processes were often not right. Our processes were often just, this is our reality and there is no other reality. And in that sense, we weren't all that different from the way the other side was working. And that brings me the Luther-Catholic um, controversy. They were on two sides of it, but they weren't all that different from each other. Each was you know, insisting on an absolute reality according to my interpretation. We weren't that rigid with SRF. But still... It wasn't, we, we, were, we weren't able to just stand back. And, and Swamiji, all through his life, has demonstrated this willingness to just say what is, is. It doesn't really make any difference what my biases are. I'm not interested in my biases. The day when he was writing The Path, and he came to the section of the book where he had to write about, in the first version of The Path, not the, not the new path, but the original path, he, the day he was going to have to write about his separation with SRF, during those years in the mid-70s, he would write during the day, this was just before computers, and he would often mark up his, he would, he, would, he would type, and then he would edit by hand, and then he liked to have clean copy. He, he could never tell if a page was sufficiently edited if there were marks on it. He needed to be able to see it, which required an enormous amount of retyping. And at some point in that process, he allowed me, he began to trust me enough to let me Type the retype the pages. So I would come at the end of the day, four o'clock, and he would often have a lot of pages and I would type them up for him and then he would go over them in the evening. But I came that day and he hadn't written anything. And he said he'd spent the entire day and he sort of was, and this is where he was when I found him, he was sitting in his desk chair, which spun a little bit, and he was facing the wall. And he said he was just thinking through 
the whole experience, you know, with Diamata, with SRF, everything from the very beginning to just see if there had been any um, any aspect of it that he'd missed or any point in which he should have done something that he didn't do or if even now um, his intentions had been wrong. And he said, if I had felt that uh, she was right and I was wrong, he said, I would have gone to her on my knees and that would have been that. And he really meant it. It wasn't just like a sentiment. It was like, why not? You know, let me see it really from the ground up. Because then also when you make decisions about what you're going to do, you act from a place of complete awareness. So then even if you decide, all right, this value trumps that one, this principle is higher than that one, but you're, you're acting consciously. And in that way, it's not from a point of weakness. It's from a point of complete awareness. Swamiji um, writes in, uh, toward the end of this chapter, he says, I urge everyone who wants material success to live by three principles. First, always work with a sense of inner freedom. That's just, it's, he just says that so, so simply. But that's really everything. Because if, we're, if we live in a state that the world is doing something to us, you know, that we're always, there's, the forces are working against us and we're not really choosing this. And, you know, this goes right back to our very first lesson. All karma is really fair. Everything happens exactly as it's happening. So there is no time or position in which you are actually a victim of anything. You're always acting. We are always acting. We're always living in, in, a, in a state of perfect, righteous balance with whatever causes we put into effect, we, we put in ourselves, we are now reaping the effects of those. And we may not be free in the sense that we're compelled by all these forces, but we can be at least inwardly free in the sense that we have complete commitment and faith in the fact that life is unfolding as it's meant to unfold. And that's often the best freedom that we can have. I mean, a higher kind of freedom is to really be consciously um, aware of an inner state of bliss that transcends what we're doing. But at least we cannot be in rebellion against what we're doing. That's the second stage of the soul's long journey away from its home in God is where the truth is put before us and we just declare, no, I want something else. I want it to be different. And that state of rebellion is where a tremendous amount of time and energy is lost at least we can enter into the third stage, which is the quest, where we have this deep and profound inner desire at least to know what's true. And that gives us a certain kind of freedom because we're at least looking for what's true. And then you see you're not so pig-headed in our points of view because we have a desire not merely to hold on to the point of view that we already have, but a desire to quest after what is really the reality of the situation. That's why Swami said, you test, because sometimes you can only tell the, the truth of a course of action by um, testing it and seeing the results. So sometimes you have to have the courage to sort of put yourself out there and see you know, what the world is going to give you back. So he said, a sense of inner freedom. S- second, he said, work for overall peace and harmony. If do- even if doing so entails making difficult, though acceptable, compromises. I've always... One of the the facts of life at Ananda has always been the great importance that Swami has put on harmony. It's taken me more years than I'm proud to admit for me to really appreciate how profoundly important that is. Um, Very often, um, I've made the error, and I know others have made the same error, of thinking that the details of a situation are more important than keeping everybody's energy flowing together in a positive way. And Swamiji is just talking here about material success. If you, if you um, fracture your team, if, if some individuals become so fixed on their ideas that they can't compromise enough to allow other people's creativity also to show, then the net result of everything you do is less. Whereas if you can act and, and make the necessary compromises, something Swami says all through here, most decisions are not that critical. Only a few decisions are really critical. I learned that from David first because I 
have always been a, a perfectionist about my own ideas. I, if I think this is the right idea, I really want to do it. But David has really helped me to understand very slowly from me, I'm not proud of how slow it's been, that it just doesn't make any difference whether you put, do it just like this or just like this or just like this. If everybody is working together and everybody's energy is engaged, the magnetism of what you're going to do is going to be right. Whereas if you get this exact little piece right, at the expense of the peace and harmony of everybody else involved, then the magnetism of this being right will not be nearly sufficient to overcome what you've lost. I mean, of course, in a spiritual community, it's even more profound, but it's true in all situations. And that's where he says, even keep peace and harmony, even though work for overall peace and harmony, even if doing so entails making difficult, though acceptable, compromises. You know, allowing people to do things that you don't think are ideal because the principle you're following is overall peace and harmony. It, it's, it's been... I was very struck. One of the ways that I really began to capture the importance of that was in a letter between Sister Gyanamata and Master. And when Master would go on his spiritual campaigns and leave Mount Washington sometimes, and he would leave Gyanamata in charge. And he said, um, I always have a great sense of confidence when I leave you in charge because you're a peacemaker. I mean, I read that and I thought, wow, that... That, that really caught my attention. In fact, I wrote Swami a letter that said, ah, you could never say that about me. <laughs> you know, I had many fine qualities, but that wasn't one of them. Because it had never crossed my mind how important that was until Master said to Gyanamata, you would think because you're wise, because you're deep, because you're in tune with me, but because she was a peacemaker, she could keep, well, among other things, none of the sheep would be lost. She could keep harmony in the ashram. And, but I mean, even in a business, you keep all your talented people working together and everybody going forward in a positive way is much more important than just having one lone wolf who streaks out and then has to carry the whole burden by himself. So Amiji says he remembers in the early 70s when Seva came to him with certain ideas that she had about developing the publications business and he wasn't terribly impressed with those ideas but he, he said, he realized that if he did not allow her to develop it in the way that she thought, he would have to do everything in the community for the rest of his life. And that the only way of ever really, you know, expanding people was to let her go forward. And he says that over and over in here. People have to have the freedom to make their own mistakes because only from the results of their actions will we really learn. Experience is what teaches us. He puts that interesting comment in there that atheists argue against other people's arguments about the existence of God and they can argue back and forth but no atheist can ever argue against the experience of God. You know, once the experience is there it's beyond all argument. You can't, you can't have an argument anymore. So people, you know, have to be allowed to have their experience because that's the, that's the way that knowledge becomes really one's own. So then the third point is to offer up the fruits of everything to God. And and you see then, everything becomes quite clear. I have a sense of inner freedom. I don't have to insist on a stupid point of view. I can actually just see what's happening. If you have a sense of inner freedom, then there's nothing you're protecting. You just want to know what's true. And if you're working for peace and harmony, you have expanded your sympathies. And your principle becomes... um, one that is expansive and not contractive. And then, of course, if you're, you're working with a sense that this isn't really about me, this is really everything that I do, I'm really working only to be in harmony with higher consciousness. Because, as Swami says in here, all you ever have, and he says it over and over again, all you ever have is your own consciousness. And if you do that, which makes you unhappy, it doesn't matter how rich you are, what you really, the fruit of that is is unhappiness. It's not something that needs to be emphasized you know, to the people necessarily listening here, but so often in our minds, in our, in our lives, we just forget that there is no product but my own consciousness. I want to just end with a thought that Swami gave us once. When he was just, he was just talking um, in a casual way to colony leaders, to leaders, 
spiritual leaders of Ananda. He said, your own spiritual welfare must also be taken into account. He said, it's presumptuous to imagine that you can't. He said, for example, if a certain decision really needs to be made, but perhaps it's a, it's a harsh decision, but it might even be the right decision, but if it makes your heart contract in an uncharitable way to make that decision, he said, don't make that decision. Make one that makes your heart expand. Isn't that interesting? Because if it's bad for you spiritually, it's not going to have a, a good benefit. Very interesting, isn't it? Because what is the principle that we're working from? The principle is peace and harmony. And that, he said, it's, it's presumptuous not to include yourself in that equation. Now, but of course, you have to have a sense of inner freedom or else you make cowardly decisions, you know, based on not so much a fear of actually contracting your heart, but a fear of having to face difficult things. That's why he says peace and harmony is a value even though you have to make hard decisions because you need the inner freedom and the surrender to God to be able to make those hard decisions so that you can keep things on an even and harmonious keel without acting from a position of weakness. It's very interesting, isn't it? The right kind of compromises. But, you know, Swami's not asking us, he's not offering us a quick and, which we call a cheap thrill. (laughs) He's offering us something that will be, give us prosperity of the highest order forever. So, all right. I think this chapter got used up in one week, so we'll go on to 13 next week. Say again? This was 12. Yeah. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.